microphone this, and he asked me to lead the, the first section of it, which is hearing from you. So what do you think the keys to a good, happy, long-lasting marriage are? And it's not a trick question. Is this being recorded? Yes. Oh. I'm not married, so I need my other half to listen to so, you know. No, You give us your opinion. Thing. Keep in mind your Miranda rights. All right. And, uh, yeah. But this isn't just about, okay, you know, obviously we want to hear from people that have been long married, but we all know people. My parents have been married 40 years. We all know people who have made it. And some of them we think like, oh my goodness, why are you still together? And others we think, wow, okay. Communication and give and take. Can we call it mutual self-giving? That would be good. That's what you said, right? Yeah. Clearly, yeah. remember doing that. I'm divorced. I got nothing. <laughs> Actually, you probably have a lot more than you want. I have goals. Okay. All right. <laughs> I want to make him go first. <laughs> but I think loyalty is like probably the number one. Like we're very stubbornly loyal to each other. I was going to say stubborn. Communication sucks. But we're super loyal. Super loyal and stubborn. Yeah, stubborn. Yeah, it's like stubborn. And you're gonna have tenacity. Yeah, tenacity. Those are good. That's tall, forty-two. Yeah, it's a marathon. Yeah, forty-two. Long view. That's what marathon means. Yeah. Long view. And then eventually you get this. You get this mutual shared history, which becomes like when you've been married for thirty years, you start. All of your memories are, re are, your partner is a receptacle for so many memories and people who have died that only you guys remember together and those people are really precious. I had a friend that said something like her parents have, they've been married for a long time and the, the marriage has some issues but one of the things she said is I don't know what my parents would do without each other because they store each other's memories. Yes. Like they've gotten, they've been together so long they've almost started to share a consciousness in yeah. terms of, especially when you start to think about the past. Yeah. So that helps with communication. <laughs> it's like a shared history. Do <laughs> you have anything to add? Not score. Because you got ahead, I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> But it gets like that, you know, it's like you, you become more of one. It's, uh, it's less of the individual as you go on. You know, viewpoints become the same, memories become the same. Yeah. So there's less issue the longer, the longer it goes on, the easier it gets. I think in the beginning it was, you know, it, it's, it's up and down all the time at the beginning, but it's pretty easy yeah. to 
And also you start getting, like, if you're, if you are properly, like, devoted to each other, um, your finances now converge. Your property now converges. Your children, you know, you've invested in your children and they're invested in you. Um, and so you start starting to, like, everything's kind of going down. Your interests start to merge. Yeah. Well, it's it's more like your future is this merged thing. It's it's hard to describe. So a lot of people think of their family as you know the people who had them, but we think of our family as our kids, our us, and then our children, and then eventually our grandchildren. So it goes into this future time. There was a time when we thought like we were like the only couple that had children as well. And so you'd always think, like, what are we doing wrong? Like, we're the suckers and things like that. <laughs> but then you realize everybody else was married but single. They were married, but they would, like, be leaving two totally different lives, different jobs, different interests, different groups of friends, some different vacations. And so you're married but single. And we always thought, well, we're married, but we're not single. Everything, everything is together. Everything is together. And then, you know, with, with the kids, that was just like the ultimate. Everything then is together. And going back to last week, you know, what, what the kids do for you. And it's, it's absolutely true. You lose your, you can lose yourself in that. So I always thought, we, yeah, it was great. And this is where the stubbornness comes in and the fortitude because you're looking at all these other people and all their lifestyles and it's great. They have better lifestyles. And they have better lifestyles. Way better. You know, but but you know, we, we decided to have kids and we wanted kids and that was important and family was important. So you need fortitude because there's so many temptations around you and everybody on the surface is having a way better time. And, and it's rough to begin with. But... But uh, I remember it was like, yes, yes, we're married, but we're not these married but singles. Yeah. And the other end is um, a good marriage lets each person grow, too. Yeah. Each person helps the other one to grow, lets the other one grow instead of holding them back. something else out that I probably I, I was thinking through what we were going to talk about because given the subject and part of the reason that we did two weeks on marriage is because we had so many married couples and engaged couples that is not the situation of everybody in the church so I want to throw out he's been through two divorces okay. I didn't get married until I was 38 smart girl so let me tell you that when you talk about being a single woman in a parish and wondering where your place is, I've been there. Yeah. I know. See, all these things sound nice and pretty and wonderful, and I'm so glad that's the experience. But to me, my first thing is not abusive. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, I mean, these are all goals and beautiful things. But um, when you've seen kind of the crummy side of it, not that there aren't crummy sides in, you know, good marriages, but um, the ones that really um, go down the bad path, I mean, they, they can be really, really bad. 
the better something is supposed to be, the more destructive it happens. More dis the more power it has to destroy you right. when it isn't applied properly. And the other thing that I want to say for, for single people is, because we're going to talk about this, and it's all happy and glowy, but here's the thing. These people are already on their path to destruction. They've already picked <laughs> their partner. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the deacons. Like, oh, no, no. They've no. lovely no. They've gotten in the car. They've made their choice together. Okay, this single people, you actually have an opportunity to listen and learn and try to make a better choice. Mm -hmm. A more informed choice. Because let me tell you, not married until 38, never walked down the aisle, but I could tell you some stories. He walked down the aisle twice. We can tell you some stories. So, I get it. I mean... I didn't have children. Being a single mom, whole new ball game. So much respect for what you're having to do. But both of you and anybody else, because you know your relationship could blow up too, this is something that you can take to heart. And also one of the things that we want to, Jeff can talk to this, especially having gone through two failed marriages, is... If you go through the annulment process and as you start to understand what the church teaches, it is going to give you insight into what happened and what was lacking if you're going to be going through annulments at some, some period of time. And there is, for some of you are, are in you're either engaged or you're going to get married and you're going to have to go through annulments. And when you're looking back on a failed marriage, <coughs> there's going to be feelings of guilt and regret, right? Because you're going to be looking back and thinking, okay, my marriage fell apart and this is what I didn't do right, okay? Let me tell you as a married couple, if my marriage falling apart depended on me being a perfect wife 100% of the time wasn't going to work. And if my him not leaving me depended on me being a perfect wife 100% of the time it would not work. Okay. I just wanted to get that out there. No, because no, in all seriousness being, being a single woman coming into the church and parish life tends to revolve around families and trying to come into this theologically where the church is talking about, you know, the church's bride and Christ as husband, and socially so much of the parish revolves around families and couples, and looking, being in that world and trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do in there, it was not, it was not super comfortable. And honestly, the church can do a lot better, better job of incorporating single people because people are getting married later and later in life. And the church's historic vocations, right? If you're single, you become a priest or a nun, or you go into married life and you, you know, join a parish. Well, not everybody's ready to get married when they're 24 or 26 or 30. Or some people go through failed marriages and they have they have kids in the parish and they're trying to figure out how to fit it in. So, sorry, that's my little tirade. No, but, it's good. It's a good tirade. 
back to the subject at hand. Okay, what else? You, you guys just walked in. We're trying to talk about um, all the elements that go into making a good, long-lasting, happy marriage. And Deacon, you can throw in here too because you've been married for quite a while. Success. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn. Okay. Um, when I met my husband, I was in a place for my religious views and I wanted to make sure they matched up with him. And originally when I met him, I thought he was Jewish. <laughs> Surprisingly. But he wasn't. <laughs> so it was important to me that it was important to him that we had that relationship with God first before we could even become one, even think of becoming one. Shared spiritual commitments. And let's also, we'll say, grow out of that shared ethical commitments. Yes. Or agreement on ethical principles. All caps, all caps. <laughs> Sometimes children might walk through here, let's say. Um, yeah. <laughs> physical compatibility. Is that, is, and let's circle that. <laughs> I went to uh, St. Lads for grade school, and um, I don't know if anybody knows, the Aramo family, and there were, I think her name was Jean or Janine or something like that, and Joe, and I remember we had mass every single day at St. Lads when I was young, and they would, they walked in with their walkers, and they were just, I mean, your stereotypic, extremely, I mean, elderly folks, and you know, obviously had physical disabilities um, associated with age, but you know, both of them kind of pushing their walkers along, and it was just like the coolest thing. And I mean, I, I knew their family because I knew their grandchildren. Um, that was, if I, if I had to say what my goal was, if I ever get married again, that's my goal to get to that point. And I'm sure they had a lot of crap <laughs> over all those years, but they ended together in in church. Unity through time. Honey, you have anything on this that you think we should put on the board? I got lots to say later. Keep it going. All right, so let me ask a question. If we had to prioritize these, which do you think are the things that are really important versus things that are, you know, nice? Or, I've set you up, you know. 
Is it possible that that question is flawed? I think that that is, is key. Libby, Libby's dad is atheist, and obviously I'm not. And that is a very huge part of all of our conflicts to this day. And we are not remotely together. But I think that that spiritual compatibility is so key to success. Can you have spiritual commitments, mutual commitments, and have your marriage go bad? Yeah. But if you're not in a similar place, then you're doomed. Yeah. Here's the thing. Every single one of these things is critical to a marriage. And we could keep the list, we could double the list. Now, why is that? That's the question, why? What is marriage? Right? It's this ultimate human commitment. And therefore, it has to take into account every aspect of our humanity. Remember what we said the greatest commandment was? To love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, this complete, total commitment to the love of God. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. Notice you don't love your neighbor like you love God. We do not have a totality of love for our neighbor. We love God supremely. You might have a situation where you're in competition between your neighbor and God. And then you say, God first. You could also have a situation where you have a competition between your spouse and God. And then you still say what? God first. So we don't say a totality of commitment to your spouse. That's actually a flawed marriage model. But the self-giving, while not being totalizing, is nevertheless extremely rich and very full. And thus, it covers every aspect of a human being. Your aspirations, your moral foundations, your spiritual commitments, your emotional attachments, your shared histories, these memories, the things you go bring in from the past, the things you build into the future. Every element of these things, this deeply human thing, is all-encompassing. And that is why marriage is such an enormous challenge, because it's the ultimate human challenge. But it's no longer on an individual level. Now it's on a two-level. And to make it matters worse, you've got opposite sexes. As we talked about last week, this was by design, right, to create a polarity that would essentially create a giving and receiving matching throughout all of life. Because sometimes the husband is the giver and the wife is the receiver. Sometimes the husband is the receiver and the wife is the giver. God created this polarity so there would always be opportunities for sliding down the hill versus carrying the other person up the hill. That is the model of charity. And so God just created this polarity everywhere, everywhere in our lives, so that sometimes you're richer and then you can help the person that's poor. Sometimes you have greater faith and the other person is struggling and you're able to encourage that person, right? Sometimes you're the person who doesn't know what to do and you appeal and there's a teacher who knows. Sometimes the teacher's bankrupt and doesn't know what to do and you, like Elijah's ravens, come in and you supply them with what they need. Every member of the body of Christ has got some combination of all these different factors going on and it's this continual combination of things that creates the capacity for love. If we were exactly the same, we, would we need anything? Now, gender is a way to model that polarity 
so that we're always thinking about that giving and that receiving. But when you bring it into a marriage, you get this extremely sophisticated, very complex human relationship. And that's why we don't want to become, Elisa and I would describe it as the mistake of reductionism. Trying to take all these complex things and reduce it down to one thing. If you're just spiritual, you'll be fine. No, you will not. If we just have great sex, we'll be fine. No, you won't. If we're rich, we'll be fine. <laughs> That's crazy, right? No, you will not. Okay, you're not going to be, it's not one factor. It's not two, it's not three, it's not four. You cannot reduce it to three points in a poem. It is your all, self-giving all. So how do we go about doing that? That's what we want to talk about. And we're going to start not with love, marital love, but we're going to talk, start with, back to Aristotle, all the way back to the beginning and talking about friendship. Because before we talked about individual virtue, individual intellectual virtue, individual theological virtue. How do I become great, a good human being as a person? How do I become virtuous in these ways? Now we're talking about marital virtue, the combination of both through gender into this full human experience. How do we do that? And to do that, we have to talk about friendship, which is the relationship of two. So I'm not erasing this because it's wrong. It's all wonderful. But boy, these erasers are weak, aren't they? Ah, boy. Okay. What makes a great friendship? Aristotle says there's three kinds of friendship. So let's get right to it. And this should illuminate our marriages. Aristotle says the first kind of relationships or friendships are those devoted to pleasure. In other words, these are relationships of mutual enjoyments. We both like soccer. While we're playing soccer, we're going to be friends. Off the field, you know, you go sailing, I play golf. Okay, fine. You know. As soon as we get back to the soccer field, great friends again. Our commitment to one another lasts so long as the shared enjoyment lasts. You have lots of friends like that. It's just fine. Not bad. I'm not trying to say any of these are bad for things. They're great, right? We have lots of relationships like that based on mutual enjoyments, but they are dependent on very shifting circumstances. Aristotle says these are the relationships of young people because young people are constantly growing and so their enjoyments keep changing. You know, when you're a young girl and you're four or five and you're all into Disney and purple and pink, all your friends are like that. But then when you get to be eight or nine and some go aqua and water, some go into more pastel pink and white and black and they go into ballet. And suddenly the friendship dissolves. Why? Well, the ballet girl goes into ballet friends and the water dolphin aqua girl goes into water things. Right? And neither one of them remember what it was like when they had friends from Disney Princess era. Fine. We're growing. We're changing. Then when you get to be 12 and 13, the divergence increases. Friendships change again. New friendships come about. Then teenage years, right? This constant shift. You don't kind of balance out in figuring out who you are, as it were, and what you really like to do as a person until you get older in life. So young people have constantly shifting relationships shifting friendships based on the fact that their shared enjoyments keep changing. Aristotle also says that this is where romance and the erotic fall in. And he says this is why, and he talks about this in his own time, people fall in and out of love in the exact same day. 
say, what? What is he in Vegas? No, Athens, but it's the same thing. <laughs> same thing. Why? Because you have this rush, this emotional or physical rush. It's wonderful. It's amazing, right? When you're on vacation, you meet someone you've never met before. And it's a totally artificial world. Of course, it's amazing, right? And if you build a marriage on that, you build a long-term friendship on that, you're going to have a problem because these things all shift, right? So much for the American model of, of love. We're already not starting well. Shift. Also, these are relationships that are not loving Better put a big knot. Not loving the other person for who he is. Not. No. It's not loving him for who he is. It's loving him for what? What pleasure he brings to me. So in a sense, this is a self-oriented friendship. Again, you're going to have lots of relationships like this. You can't have the highest level of friendships with everybody. But it's important to understand the nature of these kinds of friendships. Second kind of friendship, friendships of utility. Utility is use. Some benefit is derived. Aristotle says these are the relationships of the aged with the younger people. The younger people need wisdom, experience, maturity, cash. Aged people need all kinds of things. This is the relationship you have with the hostess at your favorite restaurant. You go in, you talk nicely to her, she talks nice to you. She asks you about the things she knows about you. You want to impress her so you always get the best table and get the right server you love. She wants to impress you so you keep coming back. Both of you know what's going on. This is the host, host, e? what's the word for it? Host, hosted. Hosted relationship. This is a use relationship, mutually working out. It's fine. I'm not trying to condemn this relationship. Business partnership. Business partnership. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not criticizing these things, okay? This is filled with your life. The Kroger checkout person is a use relationship. That doesn't mean we're using the person. You know how we talk about being used? Being used in is when it's not mutually recognized. Being used is when you don't treat the person well, even though it is a use relationship. You understand? So we have lots of relationships like this. Once again, this relationship is only going to last as long as what is preserved. The utility, the use. And so, like pleasure relationships, these are dependent. And I'm not loving the person for who he is in himself. I'm loving him for what? use he is to me. Okay, I'm a person, well, most of you now know I love to cook. That means I always make good friendships with butchers. What kind of friendships are those? Use relationships. Now, one time I invited a butcher over. I got to know him a little bit. For my, my, you know, we had a weekly poker game. Invited him over. Didn't really work out well. He just wasn't into that. Tried to move it to a slightly different relationship. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But it's fine to have use relationships. Three, Aristotle calls the last one complete. A complete relationship is where both parties enter into 
a mutually recognized, they both know they're in this, and reciprocating, in other words, it goes both directions, commitment to the good that the other person is and is becoming. You could call this a relationship committed to the good. Think about that. Say, well, that's pretty precise. That's true. I worked on that a lot this afternoon. Both parties enter into a mutually recognized and reciprocating commitment to the good that the other person is and is becoming. These are relationships devoted first and foremost to what? Virtue. Which is what you people that we're talking about. Fundamental moral foundations. Fundamental spiritual commitments. That's what you were striving to get at, right? Virtue is the excellence for human beings. Our highest excellence is our moral virtues. Wisdom, moderation, courage, right? Our intellectual virtues, and of course, our theological virtues. So these are people who have both aimed themselves at virtue. And they recognize that in one another, and they love that in each other. And they try to bolster that for one another. In a marriage, just as in normal people, nobody's perfect. The best marriages are not perfect. They are perfecting. Think about the difference. They're not perfect. They're perfecting. Your marriage is the cauldron of the opportunity to learn love, which means you will suffer, and if you're wise, you will grow. You will grow. And so in a complete relationship, you have this ongoing commitment to the other person as he truly is. Now, these kinds of relationships are not dependent and shifting and changeable. Why would that be? Notice a key difference, right? Are these based on loving the person for what he gives you? No, it's a self-giving. It's a self-giving You love the person for who he is. Can you say it's not based on the behavior of the other person? Or well, his pleasure and utility are based on the other person? Does virtue link up with behavior? I'm sorry? Does virtue link up with behavior? So what's going to happen? But it's not because of though. Well, let's think let's about that. Be careful now. Let's think about that. Because what happens when you have a marriage where one person is committed to God and ethical conduct and love of other person and a second part this other partner in the relationship doesn't give a fig about those things. Mm -hmm. What happens in that marriage? It's destroyed. Yeah, you're exactly right. Mm -hmm. So these are two people, both committed to the good, in themselves first, and then in the other. So we're t taking out the, the notion of unconditional love? I will never leave you or forsake you? Absolutely, we're getting rid of that. We are. Okay. We're talking about friendship. Okay, gotcha. When we get to marriage, we'll add that nice extra little ingredient in. Understood. But we better have one of these if we expect to have one of those. Yeah. Otherwise, we're idiots. Yeah. Okay. Right? 
Have a lot of us been idiots in our previous relationships and marriages? Yes. Have we made these mistakes? Unfortunately, yes. Should we learn from them? God hope. God help us. So, these relationships are not easily shiftable. Why? Here's the reason. Because virtuous people don't tend to change. Think of the effort it takes to become good. By the time you get there, you're really starting to become courageous. You're finally becoming wise in your life. The advice you give your kids, you listen to it, and you're like, this is sound. Wow, I didn't know I knew all that. Right? And then you apply it yourself. Well, once you've gone to that much trouble, you've gone through that much travail, and you remember, virtue is, ultimately, that's the basis for well-being and happiness. You're not going to fall for, well, I need a new car. No, I really don't. Well, I need a new fancy spouse. No, I don't. Well, I need the promotion John got. No, I don't. I don't. Your life is not going to be shiftable. These people are rock solid. Remember the example that Jesus gives of the house that's built on sand? The house that's built on a rock? And so, when you love a person like this, they're not going to change. And frankly, you're not either. And so, these relationships are those lasting, long-term commitments. You know that person has your back, and you have that other person's back. These are very rare. Aristotle says there's two reasons for that. One, just frankly, a lot of people aren't interested in being good. And the second reason is, how do you know the person is like this? I mean, shifting over to marriage, the purpose of dating and courtship is character assessment. Am I the sort of person fit to marry? Or when I get to the altar, am I going to sick my horrifying self on this poor innocent victim? <laughs> Step one, what kind of person am I? We should all be asking that. And if you've already married, you should <laughs> retrospectively ask that question. You can see the veterans laughing because they understand. And the second question is, who is this person I'm marrying? Is this the sort of person that I'm going to be able to complete, and is this kind of person going to really complete me? The problem with the American model of courtship, it's all about the last thing you ever think about is character assessment. It's all about a frantic rush based on feeling and physicality. And somehow, if we have really potent feelings about each other and we're really attracted to each other, everything else will work out. Somehow. Somehow. But what doesn't is... Matter. It doesn't matter that we don't have a way to make a living. It doesn't matter that we have our value systems if we sat down and put them side by side are completely incompatible with each other. We feel intensely for each other. But also, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what Paolo thinks about this, but I think that Paolo kind of, and I kind of went through the three phases because we met so young. Our, our first phase was definitely just about pleasure and fun and trotting around Europe together and seeing stuff. And then when I moved over there, I very much depended on him, and mm -hmm. he was a good set of shoulders, so he was moral and helped look down for me. Well, what you're really doing is talking about Aristotle's second condition. Yeah, so then we've evolved into the, the right. complete... When you, when you realize that, you know, I do have his back and he has my back. And How'd you realize that? Yeah. Well, because we went through some hard times together. That's how. Exactly right. And that's where veteran experience pays off. Aristotle calls this eating. Exactly. Eating the proverbial salt together. Yeah. 
You don't know who that person is until you see how they are under pressure. Yeah. And the American model of courtship does not make that very easily. That's why one of Elise's keys courtship principles is to slow it down. Force the male to act in ways that are self-controlled, self-restrained. So that the man earns your respect. Critical principles that grandmothers used to teach every, all their daughters. Nowadays, there's no, hardly any teaching from the older generation. It's like all of this has been forgotten or abandoned. I, I mean, let's talk about, you know, at, at what point you have sex in a relationship, right? I mean, we went from a system where men and women were systematically discouraged. Maybe sometimes we could say some of the methods that, that we used in terms of, you know, young people and, and their feelings and their hormones were too extreme and some of the judgment that came down on them. But some of this was practical, right? When you start having sex, you are engaging in a intensely personal, physical, physical, physically intimate engagement that is driving you to the pleasure principle. And you want to keep that up. When you are mixing sex into a relationship early on, you are massively clouding your ability to see reality. That doesn't mean that, you know, I've known couples who have had sex early in their relationship and they've gone on to have successful marriages and whatnot. This isn't a, this isn't a death knoll. This isn't a, an automatic, oh my gosh, you know, you had sex after you had known each other three weeks. You're doomed, doomed, I say. But there are reasons that the church and society historically has tried to discourage young people who are headed towards marriage from engaging in a sexual relationship super early on because it clouds your judgment. Mm -hmm. You can't character assess. And remember, sex is a sacramental principle, which means it's marital, of knowing another person. Total intimate knowledge. Okay, so I'll give you a college example. You know you have to be really tough with the college students, right? So I said, okay, so let's suppose you, you know, Harriet, you shake hands with Henry today, uh, and then tomorrow you meet up. How do you feel about that? They look at me like, there must be another one of these Socratic setups. I don't think we should answer this question. Answer it. Fine. Okay. Let's suppose you hook up tonight. Harriet, you see Henry tomorrow in the cafeteria line. What then? And the girl's just like, oh. Right? The famed walk of shame, right? Do honeymoon couples feel that way the next morning? No. Honeymooners are like, let's do that again. Yes. No shame, no embarrassment. No, this feels awkward. It does not feel awkward, it feels right. Even my college students look at me like, yeah, there's something to that. Right? So these powerful principles need to be used appropriately. And the reason the church has these rules is because they're the only possible way to ultimately be happy. So if we push the principles of pure pleasure too fast, marriage gets you to pleasure, but it's earned. They had to go through Europe together, struggle and take care of each other. And she depended on him. He had to prove that he was worthy of that. And if you haven't eaten the proverbial salt together, if you haven't suffered together, if you haven't seen how that person really is in himself, how do you know they're trustworthy? 
said, well, I don't need all that. I just feel it and I trust. Okay, join what, 50, 60% American divorce rate, good luck. That's the American model. Has it worked for our society? No, and uh, let's be blunt, Catholic percentages are the same. Why? We're not following our rules. We're not following the fundamental teaching of what marriage really is. So, we have to model our marriages on these kinds of relationships where we prove who we are. We take our time and we assess. Part of the relationship Aristotle emphasizes, it's very interesting, this might surprise you, is the principle of equality. Now, what does he mean by that? He does not mean that men and women, or even two men, are the same. So what he means. Let me give you an example. I'm going to use a proverb of Solomon. You ever hear the phrase, iron sharpeneth iron? What does that mean in a friendship? Maybe not quite as brutal, but honest. <laughs> I, mean, I, can, I can relate to this with, I have a best friend. Uh -huh. And we have been best friends since we were four years old. And it's a relationship where we see each other a couple times a year because right. she lives where we grew up and I live here. But our relationship is really in the number three because mm -hmm. we love each other so much that we will look each other in the eye and say, you're wrong about that. And there's a respect from the other side. Yes, and here's Think about how much you have to go through before you earn the right to say that to somebody, right? It's so hard. But that's exactly right. Iron sharpeneth iron means you both have the stamina, the capability to recognize the faults in the other person and to caringly help that person through it. But notice, this is the key. It's reciprocal. What happens when iron meets cheese? You get the best cheese what you've ever seen on a tray, right? But a relationship like that is not a complete friendship for Aristotle. A relationship like that is a mentorship. See, the cheese doesn't help the iron. It's one way. So one of the things that I've noticed in um, my friends who've become divorced or don't have an iron sharpened iron relationship um, is you get to our age, like in your mid, like in your early to like some 50 on and you, you, they start to go slightly insane because they're not actually holding each other responsible so whatever mm. character flaw they had starts ballooning and mm. it just gets bigger and so if you were you know kind of going over the edge into some sort of gambling habit and the other person didn't pull you back all of a sudden this gambling habit's like really hugely evident or alcoholism or or just spending your money frittering it away on you know yoga lessons and massage not that that's a bad thing but you know don't if that's not balanced out with anything else it's just all self 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 so if the iron doesn't meet the iron there is never this accountability and responsibility and hauling the other person back in and saying no that is actually insane and I have to tell you that, and I have to stop you from doing this, and you're not going to like me very much for the next couple of weeks. But this is what's going to have to happen. And, right. you know, I mean, Paolo and I have both pulled each other in, 
It's not very much fun. And I think in a typical American marriage, of which I don't think we have one at all, um, I, I think the other person would say, well, who are you to tell me that? How can you dictate to me? I'm right. an independent woman. How right. can you do that? And the other person has to look you in the eye and go, sorry. Right, and you, can go, and you can go to have you know, glasses of wine with your girlfriends, and they'll all support you. Oh, he's so terrible to yes, you. Yes, they will. And he'll go down to the bar and complain yes. about you, and all the men will be like, yeah, yes. what a bitch she is. Yes, and then, you, then the next step is living into that story. Mm -hmm. My husband is a tormentor, or yep. he has issues, or there we have so much psychobabble that we can label this. I can paste him full of labels, and he can paste me full of labels. But, mm. uh, and then your friends will agree with it. Of course they will. Because they love a little bit of drama. And yes. It's so much fun to see somebody else fail, because that makes me feel a little bit better about myself. Reality TV is so much better when it's someone you know. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And then, then you don't have that support from your friends to either meet iron against iron and say, no, you're actually going insane. That's a good person. Exactly. And that's, why, that and that's why, Cynthia, we're starting with friendships first before we get to marriage. Because... And this is really important. Women, you're always going to need women friends independently of your husband. There is, I, I, I one time sat at a coffee shop and deliberately listened to some women that I did not know, okay, <laughs> and watched their eyes. And I watched the way they interacted. And it was something else. I mean, it was a revelation. This narrative, shared, emotional, supporting experience event that I watched unfold was truly amazing to me. And I realized I could never, ever, ever do that for a woman. I learned some things out to be better at, to modify how I react to a woman, but I'm never going to be a woman. And if a woman listens to two men, she's going to realize when men are hitting each other on the back after a great squash match, I'm never going to interact like that. That's right. And that brings up two things. One, husband and wife are not wife and wife or husband and husband. It's something that shares in both but creates a new thing. But it also means that what women do for each other and what men do for each other is absolutely necessary outside the marriage. Marriage is not two persons becoming one person where you need nobody else. This is a complete myth. Now, can you get tied up with your other friends so that you forget about your spouse? Of course. As with everything, you've got to be prudent and smart. But there's times when the wife needs to go off with her girlfriends, and if she's prudent, she doesn't blast her husband, part of what you were talking about. But then again, if you have the right kind of girlfriends that are committed to your good, they're not going to tell you, well, have you seen a divorce? I got it. Where's my Rolodex? Or I'll give you the counselor who I know always steers women straight out of marriages, right? You know those kind of counselors? I, I don't want this to, I don't intend this question to be whose fault was it, Adam or Eve's. But I think that, that, that you're kind of driving at, if you look statistically at our American culture, far and away the majority of those who file for divorce are women. Far and away. Two to one. Two to one, why, again, I don't mean this whose fault was it as to who ate the apple, but... No, Alisa, go ahead, why, you, why? you can't answer that. So I have suspicions about that. Okay. One, I think that some of this could be cultural historical. So we could be looking at a historical blip <coughs> in that for a very long time, because of the nature of economics and history, 
Right. Women were just expected that if your husband was a philanderer, you were just supposed to put up with it. Yeah. Just deal with it. What do you, yeah, does he come? Does he come home and does, is he beating you? Is he doing this? You know, I, it, I mean, at certain historical times, that was just something you were supposed to put up with too. Yeah. But is he a good provider? You know, what? What basically? What do you have to complain about? And we went through a shift in the '60s and '70s, and and you know, and, and then continuing. Whereas a society, we're like, no, uh, you know, you don't have to put up with that. It's not okay for, for you to have to be carrying everything and your husband to be philandering or doing this, that, or the other. I also think that because some of this might be being, you know, nature, the, the nature of the genders, is that men are better at compartmentalizing their lives. And so a man can be in a really bad marriage and just kind of outsource it, whereas a woman, when the marriage is really bad, it's like, it's more into us. And I don't mean to say that it's not damaging to a man emotionally. I just think that men are kind of better at, at separating that off. So I think that some of this is about is about feminism, and I think some of this is about the nature of woman, where a man who's in an unhappy marriage might just slug it out and, it, you know, you have this phenomenon, right, where men will stay married, but like they'll have a piece on the side, or however you want to call that, sure. and they're not te they're not necessarily tempted to to break up the marriage. It's hard for me to imagine a woman having a a lover on the side and not feeling a crisis there, where she's like, I I've got to pick one or the other. Right. I think with I, I I don't know maybe the other women in the room will will disagree with me but so I think I think that that's probably what's going on with yeah that. I I don't disagree with you and I have a track record that's very not good so but I I think it's it may be partly feminism but I also think it's an economic shift too where women now are earning right. So they may be in a position where they can't leave and support themselves. I know I stayed in a terribly abusive relationship years ago because I had three little kids. Mm -hmm. And I worked a job that was just enough to pay the babysitter. So I couldn't go anywhere until I could. So mm -hmm. I, I, no, think, I, I think a lot of it I, is. I had a really close friend at work, and she, t I mean, I, I know her story. And you could, on the outside, you could look at it and say, oh, my goodness, what a horrible woman you know, like, she went through this marriage, and, oh, everything was fine, and then, you know, as soon as she could get away, she could. And what she said is, no, I had I had two little girls. I couldn't leave. I told my husband over and over and over, this marriage is, I am unhappy, You and she had good reasons for being unhappy. And she said, and I stuck, I, I stuck it out for my kids. And as soon as my youngest turned 16, and I had, was able to have a job so that I could get out, I, I had to leave so that I didn't lose my mind. <clears throat> and, you know, and I think her husband was probably very unhappy in the marriage, too, but he had a career, and he had his hobbies, and he had all, you know, he had all this, that, and the other that he was doing to kind of get through. Oh, that's she was by compartmentalized. Yeah. If you look at the amount of time that men talk about relationships versus the amount of time that women do, yeah. it shows you the relative importance, the, the, the recognized importance in their, in their lives. So. I've seen over all of my years of nursing, women's health is one of my specialties. And um, it seems at times, depending on the relationship,
kind of along the lines with children, um, I think that sometimes, and I mean, this does apply to my situation as well, that when, when a relationship gets to the point where um, if a woman feels like kind of that mama bear kind of thing, like I need to protect my children or, you know, my children are going to be better off outside of this situation, I think that that plays into it as well. Um, and that's, that, again, a gender disparity because the woman is vulnerable on this. And if the man is attacking the women or attacking the children or both, well, obviously the woman's going to be the one filing for divorce in that case for protection. And you can also see a situation where a woman says, okay, I'm going to bide my time because my kids need their dad or they need that support or they need whatever, so I'm going to put up with whatever else is going on. I'm the, I'm the adult. I'm strong. I can tolerate this. And, you know, once the little kids don't need that anymore, you know, that... I mean, essentially, the utility of the marriage has run its course. Mm -hmm. So I want to be very careful when I talk about equality here, <laughs> when we apply this to marriage. We're not talking about sameness or that the genders do the same thing. We're talking about a principle where the powers of both parties are useful to support, help, move the other to the good. So are you talking about a true partnership? True partnership. A complementarity. That's right. the key concept. Because Marriage is a complementary partnership. All right. I mean, I've told Paul this, but my, both my marriages were just horrible. So I'm going to just cross out there equality so, no, so we know. No, <laughs> this no, word is too loaded. Right. right, exactly. There was no partnership. And with my best friend, there is a true partnership. So would it be like safe to say that it's equality in the effort we put towards each other? Well, yeah, I mean... Towards, like, Hopefully, but not always, sometimes the other person may be able to give more. We're talking even about an equality of what comes into it. That's what Elisa and I mean when we talk about constitution. We've been using this phrase a couple times, we sort of seeded it early in the class, that we are both constituting and constituted. The constitution is the order of who and what you are, your whole structure as a human being. Okay? Everything that went into you and everything that you're becoming. The part that you're constituting are all the choices that you make. That's where moral freedom comes in, the decisions that you make. Who am I going to be as a person? But the constituted is all the stuff you came into that with. Your blood, your DNA, your sickness history. Who are your parents? Did you have two parents or one? Did you have any parents? What about your siblings? If you had all sisters, that's a different kind of constitution than if you had, if you're a girl and had all brothers. Or did you have a mix? Where were you in the birth order? Birth order affects constitution. Were you born in America? Brazil? Holland? Poor or rich? Were you of noble birth or were you a peasant? Okay, all of this that you said, well, this is this massive material stuff that we can't control. Exactly. And here's the point. You can't control it. So when you go into looking at another person that you're going to be a life partner with, you're marrying not just their choice. You're marrying the entirety of who they are, which includes that massive constitution. So when we say you're trying to character assess, we mean not just their moral quality. We're talking about what goes into what they are. Because in a lot of ways, human beings are like babies, which women understand better than men. And what I mean is this. When a baby starts to cry, it's not a willful choice. Something is constitutionally disordered. They don't have free will yet. You say, okay, what's the list? Are they wet? Are they hungry? Are they warm? 
Are they appropriately cuddled? Do they need a nap? And you go through the list and guaranteed it's something unless they've got, you know, colic or something, right? Human beings aren't that different. Right? And women tend to be very good at realizing, oh, he's reacting like this, but there's something else going on underneath. Constitutional disorder. He didn't get any sleep last night. Probably that's what's going on. And so, you know, you sort of listen to what's being said, but you realize that's not really what's going on, but we'll just sort of herd him back along to where he needs to be, right? Boy, that exactly. It should sound familiar. He knows. It cuts both ways. I'll turn, and, and, and I remember this situation, and I think I said something snappy to him, and, my, and Jeff looked at me, and he goes, you really need to eat, don't you? And I was like, yes, I am hangry, and that is why I acted that way. Or it, it, he'll do something out of character, and I, like, he, my husband tends to migraines, and he'll do something out of character, and I'll be like, you're going to get a migraine tomorrow, and he'll use Like, and... Nine times out of ten, you're getting a migraine the next Because I like to believe in my own self-determination. That I make my choices. So if I'm feeling weird, there must be a reason, and let's figure out what it is. But there aren't always reasons. Sometimes there are causes. Those are, those are the things that are conscious and easy, easy to identify. Reasons. Now, what happens when you have a family history with one of you that has parental abandonment? How is that going to unconsciously transfer and impose itself into your relationship, into your marriage? You're abandoned as a child. Right. This has. I can answer that. No, my mother passed away when I was in high school. My dad remarried very quickly uh, be before mom was cold in her grave, in my opinion. And it wasn't a good experience. And what, how it works out in my relationship. What with Betsy is I push away, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. I expect to be abandoned again, so I'm going to make being abandoned happen. Right. And it's really a sad cycle right. that, that I've lived through a couple of times. Right. The key is no. Uh, yeah, and it's brave for you to do so, and I really appreciate that. Notice that he's recognized that. That's what therapy does for you, right? Or you know, a lot of merciless misery of agony of life. Sure. But recognizing it is only step one. Because here's what he cannot do. He cannot become unabandoned. Therapy does not fix you. The only thing that fixes us is love. That's it. And it takes time. And it takes time. And, yes. and she's trying to love him, and he's trying to love her, and now, you know, presumably they've had this conversation before now about the abandonment. Right, so they've now got to figure out, okay, you have got this abandonment issue, and you're, without wearing it, going to likely react in certain ways, but I'm going to understand why you're reacting that way. You're not actually angry with me. You're not actually upset about work. It's actually this other thing. So, that, see, that's this deep knowledge that you gain constitutionally of the other person. So you can see what's really, what's on the surface, but also understand what's the iceberg underneath. You know how they say the iceberg's the big chunk? That's what human constitution is. And the ability of him to be honest and say, yep, this is a problem, and then in an actual situation be able to figure out, okay, is this a normal issue? Yeah. Or am I reacting like this? It has been, that Absolutely. conversation has been huge. And because there'll be times that I'd be like, you're really acting like a jerk, so why? Is, why? This, is it because of this? And, right. and um, I'm, he's not the only one that acts like a jerk, for the record. Of course, I understand. Um, <laughs> 
But you see, you see the complexity of this. Yes. So when, when we're looking for partners and when we're trying to fulfill our marriages, we're not just talking about the choices that we make. We're talking about the entire order of what it means to be the person that you are. And that includes this huge constitution. And you can have people together whose constitutions are not able to properly reciprocally support one another. And those marriages are going to be a very tough act, even if you're devout Catholics. You go to Mass every day. Remember, marriage has two components. Remember what we said the first time when we talked about the sacrament? The spiritual component, but also the what? The material component. And that's epitomized by our sexual unity. But it's the full human constitution. And so you can be all devout. You can go even say your Mass in Latin. Somehow Latin is better than English. Maybe God only talks in Latin. I thought originally it was Hebrew, but whatever. You know, maybe Latin is better, okay? This is not going to help you. Talking Latin to God is not going to help you if you don't have the proper constitutional order. So for those of you who are still on the way to marriage, think about constitutional assessment to try to figure out where are the minefields going to be in this relationship? Because every relationship is going to have minefields. And then when you younger people, when you're old like we are, think of the baggage you bring into relationships. You know, he's talking about it. And that's where talking to a therapist, going through the annulment process Seriously, is so seriously beneficial. Talk about the remarriage issue. And in, okay, if, if you're both 24 and you're getting married, oh, you're just bringing your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters and your entire family history into it. Good luck with that. <laughs> now you're in your 40s or your 50s and you're still bringing mom and dad and brothers and sisters and this childhood trauma and that early adolescent traumatic experience plus your last failed marriage and all of those dialogues that were working out all of this earlier stuff now you're bringing it into a second marriage it, it really is challenging I mean because you tend to think that what happened to me before is automatically going to happen to me again yeah, and you also tend to think that it won't happen again. Right. At the same time, about different things. Yes, uh, about that. So <laughs> yep. it's, it is something that has to be talked about and prayed about. And yeah, and this is why it is so important for not just women to be talking about relationships. Okay, men, I'm sorry to have to say this, but we need to start talking about marriage. And this is really going to hurt when I say this. You're going to say, Dr. Teal, I warned you not to say this. Yes, you need to read Pride and Prejudice. You need to go to the girl with the girls to the Jane Austen films. You're like, why, please? Anything but that. Listen, Austen, this is what Austen is doing in her work, okay? This is it, ready? She takes Aristotle's theory, human virtue and friendship, and she knowingly applies it to marriage. That's what she's doing. That's why her books are so phenomenal. And so, yes, I know. You guys, you're like, I can barely read two pages. I force my male honor students to read this book. In fact, the first time I ever taught it, you know who I got to teach it when she was still an undergraduate? Elisa. That's how good she was on these things even back then. So I'm telling you, we men, we have to learn. We need to learn to assess relationships. We need to talk about women rather in more issues than numbers. 32, 24, no. Mm -mm. Okay. And if we could start to do that, first, we might be worthy of the women. And secondly, we might learn how to properly character assess and then give our sons advice. Because the entire process of constitutional discernment has just vanished. Nobody talks like the Jane Austen people anymore. 
And that's a crying shame. How is a civilization supposed to function? We no longer have the village matchmaker. Lisa and I were just talking about this. What did the village matchmaker do? She went around and she tried to figure out people whose constitutions would work together. And if you look at Jane Austen's work, have you, some of you, presumably you know this work. I mean, you know, the, Emma tries to be a matchmaker and it doesn't work very well. Right? And then you can see in certain kinds of characters why those relationships fail. Like in Pride and Prejudice, why is, is Mr. Bennett with Mrs. Bennett? Because he fell for her because she was beautiful and pretty when they were young. Look at the disaster that has led to. Totally misordered constitutions. And then you look at the great relationships in, say, Pride and Prejudice, where you have Jane, her older sister, right? And she's interested in this nice guy, Mr. Bingley. Well, what would have happened if Elizabeth and Mr. Bingley had gotten together? Completely a disaster. Total disaster, because Elizabeth is this powerful woman with enormous capability, and she would have completely run over this nice, gentle man. Or if she had actually married Mr. Collins. Oh. Horrifying. <laughs> the murder-suicide. <laughs> right. But people of similar constitutions, like Jane, those again, if you know the characters, Jane mm -hmm. and Mr. Bingley have similarly ordered constitutions. They have that equality principle. They're right for each other. But Elizabeth needs a dynamo of a masculine power. Mr. Darcy. But the whole point of the book is, yes, you need material equality, but you also need moral quality. And here's the problem at the beginning of the book. Neither one of those people are right. Both are consumed with their own pride and their own prejudice. And the point of the book is the suffering process that these two go through, interestingly, at each other's hands, to show you the point about the polarity and complementarity of gender, to expose these flaws. They're the only people that can expose it, because everyone else just looks up to them and, oh, they're the greatest. And they both despise one another. And ultimately, that despising reveals the truth to each other. And that moral transformation moves them on a path through tremendous suffering toward eventual genuine love. They were able to see each other's flaws and virtues in a mirror. And better each other. Both of them have to change for the sake of the betterness. Yes, the six-hour A&E version is the one to get. Men, you say, now you're committing us to six hours. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. No, but what she's yes. saying is really important because yeah. you can have, especially sometimes when you have two people that are really intensely attracted to each other, this feeling like I know him. Like, you know, sometimes people describe this when they're in love. Like, you could just look at me and know me, and I can look at him and know him. Okay, well, what's going on there? Because if you're both natural-born killers, what do you get? You get Bonnie and Clyde, and this isn't good. Yeah. Being able to see into the other person and exposing your flaws and wanting to help each other correct those is, is where you should, where you got to be. Right. And it sounds like we're saying that a genuine marriage is a business relationship. It is a business relationship but it's not just a business relationship. Remember, it's every element. It's also political. It's also familial. It's two families coming together. This is where Charles and Julia messed up and Brideshead revisited. They were hitting the pleasure and utility part too hard. Too hard. Yeah. Ultimately, a true commitment to the good for one another. Ready? Here we go. Watch this. How can you love the good in one another and all things that are good and not find shared pleasures? Aren't good things pleasant and beautiful and desirable? 
How can you be committed to the good for the other person and not ultimately love them and take care of them and do useful things for them? So aren't relationships committed to the good also useful? This is why Aristotle called the third kind of friendship, the closest of all friendships, not, a commi- not good friendships, but they are, right? They're committed to the good. But instead, he called them complete. So complete friendships, that true commitment to the good for the other, are also pleasant, and they're useful. And in marriage, you take all of that, and then you transfigure it through the sacramental unity, and you create this astonishing thing. Questions? Or does she have a question about character assessment? Okay. So if you're forming your marriages, you obviously want to think about who you are as characters. Figure out the way to be honest. If you can't even be honest with your partner, it's not a good start. Right? Is this person really committed to the good or not? Is this person really committed to my good or not? And then all the material elements that will go into, is this relationship the sort of thing that all these factors we're going to put into play that will make this thing down the road be able to work so that we become this family, this marital family. Because that is a lot. And if you go in before the altar and you're just hit by this overwhelming sense of the bigness of this thing that you're entering into, this is good. Because marriage is bigger than we are. It's huge. All right. Questions? All right. So we are on next week. Let's not forget that. If you hear in the church that we're not on next week because I inadvertently screwed this up, we are. And we're talking about? Lent, fasting, prayer, and alms. Because it'll be before, <coughs> one week before Ash Wednesday. All right, so happy Valentine's Day. Yes, thank you. Yes, and we will say a prayer in conclusion.